Father, we know that we are in your hands. The times in which we live are in your hands. This whole world is in your hands. We know, Father, that nothing is happening that is either beyond your control or outside of your knowledge. And so in that understanding, I pray that our faith will be strong, that you're at work to bring about your perfect plan in the lives of your people and in the growth and development of the church. And Lord, as we think of the fact that uh, events seem to be pointing to the possible soon return of Christ, I pray that we will keep our lives focused on what you have called us here to do. As we study today, I pray that the truths we learn from the Word of God will help us to have better understanding of what we are to do, what we are to believe, how we are to live each day. Father, teach us from your Word this day, I pray. And we ask that as uh, other classes are uh, being taught at this hour, all the way from the nursery to adults, that you will be present in each and every class and in the service that is concurrent with this hour. And we'll thank you for all that you do in Christ's name. Amen. You'll turn to the 16th chapter of the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 16. I'd like to read the first three verses. Then they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. If it were not so pathetic, it really would be humorous. The Israelites have had, you know, an exhausting experience there as, as they perceived that they were being crunched between the Egyptian army and this, this vast body of water, yet that God miraculously took them across the body of water. And then last Sunday we studied a little bit the, uh, the psalm that Moses wrote and that Israel sang there uh, of God's deliverance of Israel through the Sea of Reeds, the Red Sea, the, the great body of water that they passed through. And after they had passed through that, they, they were three days along their journey and they came, they were running out of water and you remember they came to a spring, an oasis, and they discovered the water there was bitter. And they started to grumble again. Oh, we're going to die of thirst in the wilderness. And, and God instructed Moses to toss a piece of wood into this spring. And, and by God's great miracle, this spring was converted from bitter water to sweet water. And, and I tried to make a point last time of the fact that this is a commentary. It's, it's an example of life. You know, many times in life we come to a bitter spring. But if our faith is in God, that bitter spring will turn sweet. May not instantly, and, and it, you know, it could be we'll go to our very death without really understanding it all. But if we believe that God does everything well, and that God is almighty, then there is no reason for us not to know or to believe 
that, that God is going to make it right, that God will make the bitter sweet, as he did for the Israelites there. And what's interesting is they had this, this emotionally draining encounter at the Red Sea, and, and now they had this encounter at, at Mara. And what does God do now? We're told in this passage he leads them into an oasis, which is virtually the green pastures beside the still waters to restore their souls and to restore their bodies there at Elam. An oasis of 12 springs where they drank deeply of good water and rested. As they were about ready to go out, that there are two gulfs that run up each side. And I gave you a map oh, several weeks ago. You may still have it there, which shows to you the Gulf of Suez on one side and the Gulf of Aqaba on the other side. They're on the Gulf of Suez side. So wherever it says that they come to the Red Sea, we're talking about the Gulf of Suez, which is a part of the Red Sea. One of the things, again, to note about the Red Sea is that it's an unusual body of water in that it is the saltiest of the seas and gulfs and bays that are directly connected to the ocean. Uh, not, not some isolated body of water that's totally surrounded by land like the Dead Sea or something, but of those which are all interconnected, the Red Sea is the most saline, the most salty. It runs up about 4%, even to 4.5% salt, which is a good deal higher than the average for the Atlantic, the Pacific, and the Indian Ocean. And so, I mean, when you get to the Red Sea, you're not talking about being in a place where, oh boy, we're next to lots of good water. Obviously, the water was not good for any purposes other than looking at it and enjoying any coolness that uh, might come from it. What we discover as we read through various passages in, in the Pentateuch is that there is a detailed list of where they traveled along the way. We don't get it here in Exodus. We just get certain ones. But if we turn to the 33rd chapter of Numbers, we're not going to read that chapter, but just a couple of verses there. In the 33rd chapter of Numbers, we have a review of the journey. And, and Moses here says they went from so-and-so to so-and-so, from so-and-so to so-and-so, and so-and-so to so-and-so, you know. Like somebody showing you their trip pictures. <laughs> Where here we are, and here, and here we are here, and here we are here type deal. But uh, in the 33rd chapter of Numbers, in verses 10 and 11, we re read that they journeyed from Elam and camped by the Red Sea. And they journeyed from the Red Sea and camped in the wilderness of Sin. So when they left Elam, when they left Elam, which was a very desirable oasis, they traveled yet to another oasis. It, it's the oasis that is thought to today to be the oasis of Raz Zemlya, which is located at the mouth of a wadi. The term wadi is used in the Near Eastern area, it's an Arabic term, for an arroyo, a canyon that comes down uh, out of the hills and uh, usually carries water periodically but not perennially. Dry part of the year has water in it part of the year. And quite often, these canyons that come down, the water runs on the surface part of the year, but seem to, seems to be dry another part of the year. But if you can dig down, dig down in the wadi, you can actually find in the lower layers there is water. And as this uh, wadi comes out to the Red Sea, there is sufficient water to maintain an oasis even to this very day. 
an oasis of trees and grass, a place of coolness and a place of rest. And so from Elam to Raz Zalima, they have this journey from one good place to another good place, but now, but now, they're faced with journeying into the wilderness. Back into the wilderness. Many, many sermons, of course, have been made on the 40 years that the Israelites spend in the wilderness to point out that this is sort of a commentary on life. And that is, I think, what it's really intended to be. The 40 years was a training session. It was God preparing for himself a people. And God was not going to prepare for himself a people by putting them in green pastures beside the still waters for 40 years. Because then they would have gone into the land of Canaan and they would have been dead meat. They'd have been eaten alive by the enemies which they faced. They, they had to go through hard times. They had to be hardened and prepared in faith, of course, above all else, but in other ways, too, that they might be successful in following God and believing God. Because you remember when they came to the moment uh, the spies had gone in the land and the spies came back and, and they decided to listen to the ten spies. Oh, it's two you know, giants in the land. We can't go in. But the two spies said, if we believe God, the land is ours. If we believe God and obey him, the land is ours. And that's the truth that was to be learned from the whole wilderness experience. To believe God and to obey him. And the land is yours. But they have to learn this the hard way. And so do you and so do I. There are many people who like the shortcut version of spirituality. They want to leap from the born-again experience to some kind of a high status of powerful Christian life, you know. And they expect some kind of zap out of heaven whereby they'll just be made into this powerful spiritual giant without going through the day-by-day -day struggles and winning the little battles and, and, and having victory over the little temptations before they face the big battles. I mean, all of us would like to, maybe if we could, short-circuit the whole process and become spiritual giants up here. But that isn't the way it happens. We have to do it the long, slow way. Because Jesus, how long did he live on this earth, you know? 35 years before he died on the cross. And he was perfect. Certain individuals, as they entered the wilderness, began to grumble. And you've all noticed, I'm sure, that there's something interesting about grumbling. It's very infectious. <laughs> One person grumbles, it's pretty easy for the next person to pick up the grumble, and the grumble kind of passes along. You know, it's kind of like a plague. And, and the people were kind of irritable anyway. You know, you're out in the wilderness, the sun is beating down, and it's glaring off the rocks, and there's nothing green around, and the kids are saying, when do we get there? You know, and how long is it? And, and so everybody is irritable, and so it's easy to listen to, to grumbling and uh, to become infected by it. So like wildfire, it spread through the camp. I think it's really significant here to talk just a moment about this concept of grumbling, this human attitude that's involved here. The verb, the Hebrew verb here, is found in the Pentateuch in only two places. One is in this section we're talking about 
right now from chapter 15 through chapter 17 of Exodus. The word grumbling shows up several times. This deals with a period from the time they crossed the Red Sea until they have an encounter with a people called the Amalekites. And then later in Numbers, chapters 14 to 17, the, the word shows up again, and that's, as I referred to a minute ago, the time when the spies came back and reported what they had seen, and, and the people griped about having to go into the land and their great fear. Well, the verb translated grumble here means to murmur or rebel. And the innuendos here are resentment, anger, complaint. So it's just not a gentle little grumbling, you know, Moses and Aaron, we, we really don't want to be here. No, they're, they're complaining, they're angry, they're resentful, uh, they're rebellious here against their leadership. Now, usually as we read in the passage, they, re, they, they, mumble, they mumble and grumble against Moses and Moses and Aaron. But it's very, very clear that the ultimate object of their complaint is God. Because it's God who has brought them here, not Moses and Aaron. They didn't have to follow Moses and Aaron. They chose to follow Moses and Aaron because they believed that Moses and Aaron were being led by God. So who are they really complaining against? They're uh, complaining against God. And when you gripe against God, that's just plain flat out sin. There isn't any other way to call it. Now, even if they had grounds for their grumbling or thought they had grounds, you know, they're running out of water, running out of food, it still displays a basic distrust in God. To grumble is to display distrust. There isn't any way to ice that over, cover that up. I mean, what had God done for them? Well, we could go back all over the list again if we wanted to, starting with the very first plague that God sent on the Egyptians all the way through the healing of the waters at Elam. And there's a long list of what God has done miraculously for them. And we say, how in the world can they be grumbling against the one who has done all that for them? In the 14th chapter of Numbers, I'd like to read a few verses there. This discusses what I made reference to a few moments ago about uh, the time when the spies went in the land. Beginning at verse 1 of Numbers 14. Then all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in this wilderness. I mean, you analyze that. Would that we had died in Egypt or died. I mean, what's their problem? Are they afraid of dying now? <laughs> They're wishing they already were dead. What's the diff? Why is it that the Lord is bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? I guess they thought maybe dying of hunger out in the wilderness is better than dying by the sword. Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, 
The land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. If the Lord is pleased with us, only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they shall be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Uh-oh, then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. <laughs> when you read down through that passage and you come to that 10th verse, you should get goosebumps. <laughs> then the glory of the Lord appeared in the temple. I mean, the tabernacle. Anybody who had any sense in their head would have said, uh-oh, <laughs> we've pushed it too far. To murmur against God is equated with rebellion. The scripture says in, in Samuel that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. So when you start putting the little equal signs in there, <laughs> you discover we're talking about some pretty serious stuff. Damning stuff, really. It's not just a simple, gentle little thing. Oh, these poor little people, I'm going to have to go down and tap them on the back of their hands because they're being naughty. They're being absolutely rebellious and they know what they're doing. They're rebelling in the face of all that God has done and all that God has said. I'd like to look to a New Testament uh, passage in John chapter 6. Find out something about this same truth. John chapter 6, I think I have on your outline verse 51. I'd like to back up to verse 48, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. And then this very, very significant 51st verse. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. The bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then down to verse 60. Many therefore of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you should behold the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe, and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. That's the ultimate rebellion, completely turning the back on the Messiah, and walking away, rejecting the one who is the bread of life. See, that's the sin Israel faces here in the wilderness. Of rebelling to the point that they reject the truth of who God is. 
rebellion. To grumble is to rebel. To rebel is as the sin of witchcraft. And of course, that leads to ultimate damnation. Jesus' disciples grumbled over the statement that he made that I am the bread of life come down from heaven. And this bread is, as he said in the 51st verse, is my flesh. And of course, they, they took it all wrong. But this was a hard statement, they said. And, and we're told that many were not able to resolve the rebellion. And they left Jesus. Grumbling throughout Scripture is always associated with unbelief and disobedience. Unbelief and disobedience. Unbelief, disobedience. We need to really, really be careful because as God's children, grumbling should never be a part of our lives. We're all familiar with the very often quoted passages from Philippians, but let me turn to the second chapter of Philippians for a moment. Paul has a way of stating it, so there's no ambiguity. Philippians 2, beginning at verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Therefore, what? Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do all things all things? You mean, you mean all things, Lord? You mean work? <laughs> my job? <laughs> Raising my kids? Uh, uh, you know, the guy who cut in line ahead of me uh, up there at the bank or down at the toll station? Or do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among who, whom you appear as lights of the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. If we live without grumbling and without disputing, what are we proving? We're told in the 15th verse there that we're proving ourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God in a world that does not comprehend that. <laughs> because we live in a world that grumbles and gripes and disputes all day long in every circumstance. And if we don't, suddenly we prove what it means to be a child of light. We reflect the true nature and character of God. That's what God's trying to teach the Israelites in the wilderness. He's trying to polish them so that they can become a mirror to reflect His glory to the world. Because they're going to be living in a world surrounded by Baal worshippers. Worshippers of Moloch and Chemosh. Worshippers of the sun and the moon and the stars. They're going to be living among, you know, amongst Phoenicians and Syrians and Amorites and Ammonites and all these other peoples, pagan peoples, who almost to the nation were polytheistic peoples, worshiping many gods and worshiping gods who required, in most instances, human sacrifice. And they were to be radically different. How are they ever going to be radically different unless they went through the furnace? And that's what they're going through. 
as, as we look at this initial time here, we find God is very, very gentle with them. God doesn't whack them like he does later. In the 16th chapter of Exodus where we are, we find that Israel's complaint is the same as before. <laughs> you, Moses, should have left us in Egypt. At least we had the flesh pots there. We had bread and we could have died with full stomachs. As if there's some kind of credit in dying with a full stomach. But no, you brought us into this God-forsaken place so that we could die of hunger. Well, it doesn't sound quite so foreign to us, I think, if we're honest with ourselves. Exodus 16, verse 4. Then, Moses, then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. The people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. It's really, really significant to read that verse and understand what he's saying. Why is he going to give them bread? See if when he gives them bread to satisfy their need, if they will then walk in obedience. It will come about on the sixth day when they prepare what they bring in. It will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, At evening you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land. And in the morning, you will see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your grumblings against the Lord. Notice, Moses doesn't, uh, you know, he doesn't allow any glossing of anything here. He says, you, you may be a griping at me and griping at Moses, but you're griping about the Lord and to the Lord is what you're really doing. And what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, this will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the morning and bread to the full in the in the evening and bread to the full in the morning. For the Lord hears your grumblings when you grumble against him. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumblings. And it came about as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. That last little phrase is really, really critical. Why does God do what he does? He doesn't do us just to, uh, you know, jazz up our senses or make us feel good. He does it so that we might know that the Lord, he is God. Moses, in this passage, makes it very clear. They have no excuse. He says, you are mumbling and grumbling against God, period. Why are you, why are you saying the words to us? You're really grumbling against God. So they weren't ignorant of what they were doing. And then in the ninth verse, Moses makes what should have been a very, very ominous declaration. The Lord has heard your grumblings. And he has commanded that you appear before him. <laughs> You're on the carpet, folks, before the almighty king of creation. 
Moses commanded Aram to surrender, to, to uh, assemble the people, and they were to stand there facing towards the wilderness, the direction in which they were going. And all of a sudden, whoosh, this big cloud appeared. Now, I'm sure in the movies they'd have some little cloud off in the distance starting getting bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, it's kind of like a storm coming or something. I don't think so. I think this, this cloud all of a sudden just <laughs> rose like a towering thundercloud right there instantaneously before their eyes. They knew God was there. If they had had any sense, their knees would have been knocking too. Because it's one thing to be called on the carpet before your boss or the school principal. <laughs> but it's another thing to be called on the carpet by God. Now, we don't know whether God spoke audibly to the entire congregation or if God spoke, spoke audibly, audibly to Moses and then told Moses to tell the people, whichever it was here, God proclaimed through Moses what he was about to do. And notice God's great patience here. I mean, you, you go back to the, the fourth verse, or, or the third verse, they're, they're griping and they're grumbling and they're saying, uh, you just brought us out here to kill us in the wilderness. And then the Lord suddenly speaks to Moses. And he says, what does he say? These people are so wicked, I'm going to destroy them and raise up a new group from you. No, he doesn't say that to them now. He will later. He says to, to Moses, behold, I'm going to give them bread and I'm going to give them meat. They're griping about being hungry. Fine, I'm going to give them food. God doesn't really take them to task here. Not even verbally. He simply says... I'm going to provide them with meat in the evening and bread in the morning. God is, is very gentle with his people. But there comes a point which he draws the line. Says you're, you ought to be mature enough now. But at this point, they haven't reached that level. The purpose of the provision was that it be miraculous so that they will know that God provided it. It couldn't come from any other source. And part of this of what was to transpire here that is recorded in the uh, ninth and 10th verses and so forth were of course also to validate Moses' authority. It will be through Moses that the word of God comes. Through Moses, the word of God comes. They need to be aware of the fact that Moses is their spokesman because a very, very important event is coming. The event where Moses will be 30 days up in the mountain will come down with a glowing face and will have the word of the Lord, the Decalogue, to give. And they need to be listening so that they know that God has spoken through Moses. So he's preparing the way. He's validating Moses' leadership step by step along the way so that when the critical hour comes, they have no excuse to not believe that these are the words of the Lord through Moses. Verse 13, Exodus 16. So it came about at evening that the quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness, there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. When the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it every man as much as he should eat. 
You should take an omer apiece according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. And the sons of Israel did so. And some gathered much and some gathered a little. But when they measured it with an omer, he who had gathered much had no excess and he who had gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered as much as he should eat. And Moses said to them, let no man leave any of it until the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Oh, how unusual. <laughs> and some left part of it until the morning. And it bred worms and became foul. And Moses was angry with them. And they gathered it morning by morning, every man as much as he, sh as he should eat. And when the sun grew hot, it would melt. Well, there is absolutely no way to get around the fact this is, of course, one of the great miracles of God in the wilderness. There's no way it can be explained in any natural way at all. God had promised that they would have meat in the evening. And so God sent quail. And, and this flight of quail came in and they just kind of took a nosedive into the camp. And Israel had all the quail they wanted to eat. The dropping of the quail right into the camp of Israel was obviously miraculous, but, you know, somebody could probably try to explain that. You know, the fly to quail got blown off course, and they hit a down shear, or whatever they call that thing, you know, when the planes go into the ground. They hit this shear, and, and so Israel reaped the blessing, and so they made it sound like a miracle, or Moses did. But when the quail came as promised... Many of the Israelites thought, you know, maybe God will also deliver the bread he promised. And so some got up the next morning early to see how in the world God's going to give them bread. I mean, meat is one thing, you know, fly to quail comes in, crash lands, you, you get all the quail you want. Oh, that's, you know, you can understand how it could happen. But how are you going to get bread <laughs> dropping down out of the sky? There's no such thing as a flying bread, you know, loaf of bread or anything that anybody knew about anyway. So how, how was this going to happen? And so we're told as they looked out from their tent entrances, they saw this mist out over all the ground, out over the desert ground. And as the sun rose, the, the mist began to dissipate. And as it dissipated, there, there appeared a layer on the ground that looked like frost, this white stuff just all over the ground, almost like it had snowed, you know, briefly overnight. And what's interesting is, uh, in the 14th verses we read there, uh, it's translated a fine flake-like thing. <laughs> a fine flake-like thing. The Hebrew here is really difficult to understand. And it's been interpreted many different ways. That's one translation of the Hebrew. Uh, others have translated as little round biscuits, you know. All over the ground. <laughs> Others have said that it was sort of like a curdled substance, sort of like cottage cheese, you know, not being milk, but looking like cottage cheese spread out all over the ground. Well, whatever was the consistency of this manna, it, it seemed to be spread fairly evenly over the ground. And all over the camp where people were coming out, look at this, and they were saying, what is it? What is it? What is it? And that's characteristic of the human race. <laughs> We always ask people who don't know what things are, just as much as we don't know. It's just the way our, we, we do things by nature. What is it? Well, finally someone said, well, let's ask Moses. <laughs> he might know. 
And Moses says, well, it's the bread God promised. It's the bread God promised. Lechem, which can mean not only bread, it can mean grain or it can just mean food. Well, neither God nor Moses gave them a name for it. Moses didn't say, and we'll call it uh, butternut or, you know, some such thing. <laughs> Rainbow. <laughs> no. He, he didn't give them any name. So the name stuck that they began with. Man, what? You know, what is it? Manna. What is it? I'm going to have some what is it for breakfast. <laughs> it's kind of like the days when people used to take had a call, right? You remember? I don't know if you remember that, but they came out with a Geriatric, geriatric juice called Hadacol. Supposed to jazz you up, you know, and they called it Hadacol because they had to call it something. <laughs> Moses commanded them to gather the bread according to their individual daily needs, which he defined was basically an omer, which we assume was approximately about true, two dry quarts measure. Now, obviously, a little tiny child probably wouldn't eat that much. A bigger person might eat a little bit more. But that was to be the basic measurement uh, by which people were to determine how much to collect. And what is interesting, God miraculously governed the supply. <laughs> and this whole thing is so miraculous that there isn't any way to get around it being supernatural. Because, first of all, it was always there every single day except on the Sabbath. Monday it was there, and Tuesday it was there, and Wednesday it was there, all the way through, except on the morning of the Sabbath it was not there, but every other day it was there. Secondly, those who went out there and said, oh, I've got to have plenty, and scooped up a lot of it, without any concern on for whether others would have enough, found out when it was all said and done, they only had an omer. And those who looked around said, oh, they got it before me, I'll just get what I can. They collected what little, and they had an omer. <laughs> so the people who pigged out still had the same amount of those who couldn't quite even find enough, they thought. Thirdly, if they disobeyed God's command and tried to save it overnight, it became bad stuff spoiled and became wormy. Now, I, you know, that's got to be miraculous. How can anything <laughs> overnight start crawling with worms? You know? Well, the only way it could is ways that we wouldn't want to think about. Therefore, it had to be miraculous because it was perfectly good food uh, the day before. Fourthly, in spite of the fact, if they saved any over any other day, if they saved it over Friday night, it was perfectly good on Saturday, the Sabbath. Now, does that make any sense? You pick up some extra Monday and save it over to Tuesday, it's rotten. Pick it up Tuesday, save it over Wednesday, it's rotten. But pick it up Friday and save it over Saturday, it's perfectly fine. Because God ordained it that way. Fifthly, it could be ground. It could be baked. It could be boiled. Do what you want with it. It was perfectly good. But whatever wasn't collected evaporated when the sun came up and beat down on it. How can you bake and boil and grind something that evaporates in the sunlight? Well, it's a miraculous food. And I think it's not only miraculous in those sense, it's miraculous in the fact that I believe that every single person had every nutritional need met by this stuff. Can you imagine? If it had had a label on it, 
100% of vitamin A, B, C, D, X, Y, Z, you know, all the minerals, <laughs> all the amino acids, you name it, it all was there. So they could eat this stuff and be perfectly healthy all the time. It's miraculous. Well, the next passage goes on to tell us that some people were a little dense. They didn't figure this all out. They had to learn by trial and error. I'm going to go out and get some on Saturday, on Sabbath. How come there's none around here? And as you, as you read down through here, you discover there's something very, very significant about the Sabbath. And what's interesting is this is the first time God makes any point of the Sabbath in Scripture. He does not talk about the Sabbath before, except obliquely in the creation week story. And so you come here and God is beginning to build a, a foundation for what he is going to, to demand from the top of Mount Sinai. God is preparing the way for his people. And for you and for me, what we have as we study the Old Testament is the preparation for us to understand what Jesus Christ was all about and what the church is all about. And there isn't really any way to fully understand the New Testament without a good, strong foundation in the Old Testament. I mean, Jesus is constantly making reference back to there. I'm, I'm the bread of heaven like the manna which came down. I, if I be lifted up as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. I mean, Jesus kept constantly referring back to the Old Testament. And it's really, I think, essential to know the gospel of the Old Testament to really understand the gospel of the New Testament. And that's part of what we're about in our, our, our study here week by week. Well, next Sunday we'll begin with verse 22 and go on through the remainder of 16th chapter and move into chapter 17.